Errol Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. And today we are speaking with Daniel Harris McCoy, Associate Professor of Classics at the University of Hawaii, a man who knows a thing or two about our earliest divination manual devoted to dreams. Daniel, thank you very much for being on the Schwepp. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So the book I'm alluding to is, of course, Artemidorus's Onerocritica. And you published a text translation and commentary of this book with Oxford University Press in 2012. So you're well placed to talk about it. Am I right in saying that this is the oldest dream manual that we possess? I think that's right. Uh, Artemidorus talks about earlier ones, uh, including ones uh, by you know, famous diviners uh, like uh, the diviner for Alexander the Great. Uh, but uh, it's the only one that we have uh, still remaining. There were lots of other texts uh, that we do still have uh, that relate to dreams and dream theory. Uh, but what makes Artemidorus unique is it's actually kind of like a like a dream key, I guess I would say. He's going through. Uh, lots of different you know, dreams that one might have relating to all different aspects of the human experience. Uh, and he talks about you know, what outcomes they might have, uh, you know, given the dreamer and their particular circumstances. Uh, so that's, that's what really sets him apart uh, from other more theory-related uh, dream texts that we have. Right. Let's start then, now that we've intrigued the audience with this book, which is um, a rare and wonderful survival from antiquity. What can you tell us about Artemidorus, the guy. Yeah, uh, he's a Greek speaker, uh, Greek writer. Uh, he primarily associates uh, with the city of Ephesus, uh, which is in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, coastal town. But in the Onera Critica, something that I find really interesting and I've done some work on uh, is that he associates uh, with a little teeny-weeny little town uh, called Daldis, uh, which is just sort of up the road in hill country from Ephesus. Uh, and that seems to have something uh, to do with his mother's side of the family. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I've spoken with historians, unfortunately, after my book came out, and they said, oh, yeah, it's perfectly normal for women to come down from these country little towns uh, into, say, Ephesus uh, and get married and have babies. And it seems like Artemidorus was one of those babies. Based on the Suda, uh, his dad's name was Phocas. He lived uh, in the mid to late 2nd century AD. This is based on uh, a terminus postquem that refers to the emperor Hadrian. So, you know, let's say that he's living anywhere from, you know, 140 AD, maybe up to, you know, 200, something like that. Where he, you know, lies within that particular 50 year or so period is anyone's guess. Uh, some people say later, uh, some people say earlier. It's not the worst time to be alive. Uh, you know, the world is relatively peaceful. Uh, Artemidorus talks a lot about uh, travel, and he takes a lot of pride uh, in the travel and his ability to interrogate a lot of different kinds of sources. He seems to be on relatively good terms with Rome and the concept of Rome uh, and it being a Roman world, even though he's a Greek speaker and a Greek you know, ethnic within the Roman world. The Antonine Plague uh, was happening during this time, which is sort of interesting because a lot of his dream interpretations do seem to relate to illness, uh, and a lot of them are dire in nature. Like, you can definitely get a dream interpretation that predicts that your child is going to die, for example. Uh, he's not holding back. Uh, so maybe that reflects, you know, just the sort of culture of dream interpretation, or maybe that reflects actual historical uh, events. Children died 
pretty often in antiquity in the best of times, right? Like maybe yeah. maybe one in three or one in two. Yeah. But yeah, the Antonine Plague was what? Do we know what the actual uh, it melody was, a, was? It was a plague. Uh, we don't know uh, necessarily what it was. Uh, it's funny, my boss here actually uh, is a sort of historian of uh, public health, I guess you would say. Uh, and so, you know, he'll say that it's some ancient form of cholera. People have even put out uh, Ebola, sort of ancient form of Ebola, uh, as a, you know, possibly existing in the ancient world, though that might be a bit far-fetched. But in any case, it killed millions of people. Uh, I think it broke out uh, like in the 160s, or squarely within the time that we imagine uh, Artemidorus was writing. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the flavor of Artemidorus's dream interpretations, and we can get into this more if you want, uh, it does deal with basic human concerns, uh, especially, you know, human concerns in the ancient world. So is my child going to survive? What's my financial condition going to be? If I'm a slave, am I going to get my freedom? That kind of thing. Uh, I was going to say really quickly uh, before we go on, we also know that Artemidorus uh, wrote other books. He mentions this uh, in the Onero Critica, uh, and then he doesn't say what they are, but other sources like the Suda, they mention that he might have written books on augury, so bird flight divination, and also palmistry, which is funny because Artemidorus uh, insults palmistry as a discipline. He doesn't want to associate with it. Right. Uh, so you wonder if uh, the Suda got that wrong, uh, or maybe you know he was just sort of being convenient for his purposes in the Onera Critica. I'm not sure. Or uh, option three maybe could be between his time and the time of the Suda, which for non-specialist listeners is a is a late sort of encyclopedia, yeah. Uh, which from which we get a lot of otherwise lost material about antiquity. Um, his reputation as a diviner maybe from Onera Critica could have led a writer on palmistry to whack the name Artemidorus on there. Oh, uh, that's interesting. As a pseudonymous, you know, this is this yeah. is a very common practice in antiquity, so maybe it's it's <laughs> it's very ironic if if that were the case. We know it happens, of course, right? I mean there are all these sort of pseudoplatonic dialogues, for example, right? That would be very ironic because uh, Artemidorus himself is very concerned about plagiarism. Right. And people, uh, you know, taking his material and associating their names with it or, uh, you know, putting their own material into his text in order to make it, you know, more famous. So uh, uh, it would be sort of the ultimate irony if that actually happened. Mm. Uh, well, it's kind of the ultimate irony that Plato, who specifically writes about the dangers of putting your work into a written oh, form, yeah. right, because people can just run with it and do what they want, ends up being this very prolific pseudonymous author. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, turning to his book. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that introduction, by the way. It's superb. What can you tell us about the Onero Critica as a book? What's the most important things we need to know about it? It's written in five books. Uh, it uh, is a serial publication, which is really interesting. That's relatively rare uh, in antiquity. I don't know of many other instances of it. Uh, originally, he wanted it to be uh, books one and two uh, collectively published, and he thought that was sufficient. He thought that was complete. Uh, it was meant to be an encyclopedic uh, treatment of the subject of dream interpretation, everything you need to know in terms of theory. Uh, and he maps out his sort of theory and method at the beginning of book one. And then this uh, complete dream key, uh, which really interestingly, to me at least, he basically bases uh, on um, the sort of daily round. So what a human being does uh, on a daily basis from waking up to going to sleep. And then also the life cycle. So it actually begins uh, with being born and ends uh, at the end of book two uh, with dying. Uh, so he's saying, you know, you and I as human beings, right, you know, roughly similarly enculturated, uh, have common experiences. I'm going to use those common experiences to organize my dream manual. 
Unfortunately, that doesn't work out. Uh, he's self-critical. Uh, he says, oh, you know, shoot, I missed some stuff. Uh, so he adds on a book three, which is a miscellany, right? So before it was so organized and it was so thoughtfully organized. And now it's just like this random grab bag of dreams and outcomes, you know, based on different kinds of dreamers and circumstances. Then in book four, he um, sort of gives like a more theoretical approach, right? You know, if you have this rough kind of dream, uh, this is how you should roughly, you know, interpret it. Uh, and then in book five, he um, gives a lot of like actual specific historical dreams and their actual specific historical outcomes. Mm. A guy dreamed this and he had this outcome. Uh, and that reflects his, uh, you know, empiricist tendencies uh, that we see throughout throughout the manual. Right. Would the guy who has the dream in a given example tend to be a famous guy? Or would it just be some schmo that he met? So in other words, Alexander the Great had a dream before this battle and then he won the battle. This, this kind of example is very common in a lot of literature. Does he go yeah. for the big names or does he go for yeah. just men in the street? No. Quite the opposite, actually. Um, and that's a really good point, right? Because um, there was a belief in antiquity that Artemidorus is aware of and accepts to a certain extent that famous people receive certain kinds of dreams, right? So like if you're a king or a, you know, a civic leader or something like that, you're going to get dreams that relate to your kingdom, right? Or to your, you know, your populace, right? Because you're the person who can actually do something about it, right? right. He, like other people, believe uh, in a roughly providential nature of dreaming, right? Uh, that the gods uh, or whoever is creating dreams uh, are doing this to help us. But, you know, by and large, uh, you know, 99.9% .9 of the dreams uh, that we see in the Onero Critica uh, relate to everyday kinds of people. He'll say things like, a man dreamed this, or a woman dreamed this, or, you know, a young person or an old person or a rich person or a king. Uh, I guess that's contradicting what I'm trying to say. But, uh, or a slave dream this, right? Uh, or a certain professional dream this. And, you know, that, I think, probably describes the vast majority of what his um, audience would have been, right? We don't actually know that Artemidorus was a professional dream diviner, like out there in the market square. And in fact, you know, sometimes I wonder if he's sort of writing in the tradition of Vero writing on farming, or Plato writing it like the Ion, for example, you know, where it's uh, you know, it's relating to agriculture, it's relating to etymologies, but they're not professional farmers, right? They're not professional wordsmiths, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, they're just sort of doing this catalog for, uh, you know, the sake of aristocratic interest or something like that. The, um, same, the same question arises with Ptolemy, the astronomer, uh -huh. as to whether he was indeed a practicing astrologer right. or, or wrote his books on astrology as a kind of learned manual of the theory, but wasn't himself right. doing horoscopes all day long. Totally. People often associate, you know, like, well, they'll describe Celsus, for example, as a doctor. And it's like, well, wait, 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 you know, medicine was one of the things that Celsus wrote about, right? But he also wrote about a bunch of other stuff that we just don't have, right? So it's like this kind of scholarly tendency that we, you know, have to try and give people these specific identities. That said, um, you know, the first three books of the Anera Critica are dedicated to someone called Cassius Maximus, who we think is Maximus of Tyre. But books four and five are dedicated to his son. And, you know, in the books to his son, he talks about being called to interpret dreams for people. And he even talks about kind of like interpreter-client relations. So I think that's the best evidence that we have, you know, if you want to take it seriously, right, that he was actually, you know, doing divination for money or, you know, for some other reason, right, in a sort of practical professional sense. So that actually gets to something I wanted to ask you 
yeah. later. So let me just ask you it right now. Sure. What can we because this is something that um, often gets left out of scholarship, but what can we say about the job description of dream diviner in the Roman world? Yeah, yeah really interesting question. Um, we can't say a ton, uh, you know, but we get little snippets, you know, here and there that sort of allude to the profession, including in Artemidorus. You know, he talks about these, you know, so-called diviners of the marketplace. And, you know, he really respected them as a source for, you know, dreams that had actual outcomes that he could sort of like come to and confirm with them. Because I mentioned earlier that he has this kind of like empiricist bent, you know, which we primarily associate with like a kind of empirical school of medicine, right? But it's not really looking for causes. It's just looking for like proven treatment and outcome, for example, mm. right? Or in this case, dream and dream and outcome. Uh, and, you know, once we see it happen in the same way enough times, right, as the diviners of the marketplace might have done, because this is what they do all day long, right? Uh, then we can know that there's some credibility to, you know, a, a dream having this particular outcome under particular circumstances. That said, you know, he talks about how these guys were despised, right? They were called charlatans. Uh, and they were, you know, people would sort of look down their uh, noses at them, you know, so he draws a distinction between a class of, you know, people who wrote books about dream interpretation, which is precisely what he's doing. Uh, and then people who are kind of like down in the dust, you know, actually interpreting dreams for people for money. Uh, and he actually has a lot more respect, uh, contrary to, you know, seemingly most of society, for the people who are down in the dust, uh, you know, doing it, uh, and not for these, you know, authors who are like plagiarists and, uh, you know, just sort of taking each other's, you know, works and adding to each, you know, old respectable books and claiming them as their own and, and whatever. You know, that tells us something uh, about Artemidorus' views uh, versus society's views. Other accounts of these, you know, actual practicing marketplace diviners, they're typically negative, right? So, like, you know, Juvenal, for example, in one of the satires, you know, he talks about uh, Jews. It's an early version of anti-Semitism uh, who will sell you any dream you please. Uh, and I'm not precisely sure of, you know, what that means, but it seems like they're basically pandering to their audience and, you know, they're willing to give you, you know, whatever outcome you desire, as opposed to like the more scrupulous Artemidorus, who will tell you that your child is going to die if, in fact, you know, according to his view, uh, your child is going to die. Let's talk about theory. Yeah. Okay. So sure. We know a little bit about the book he wrote, a little bit about the kind of context it may have existed in. If it were on a library shelf, maybe there would have been some other books there. But for now, we'll leave that. Let's talk about the theory. So mm -hmm. the first thing I wanted to ask you about is the typology of dreams. Like what kinds of dreams are there? Because that seems yeah. to be the most basic first criterion. Yeah. He's a very um, typological thinker. Uh, and this is sort of typical of, you know, technical writing in antiquity, which I would, you know, see him as part of. He basically uh, adopts a twofold and then a fivefold uh, system of classifying dreams. Uh, and so without, you know, boring your listeners, um, basically says that dreams can be categorized into true dreams, uh, which he calls oneroi, uh, and false dreams, which he calls enhupnia. Uh, and um, oneroi, there's not a great translation for them, you know, beyond a dream. Uh, enhupnia are sort of like things that you see in sleep. And then within that, he goes into different categories of dreams uh, that you can see. The false dreams basically, uh, you know, as a sort of group, come uh, out of the sort of desires, uh, the inner passions and desires of the dreamers. So like I might have a false dream if I, you know, really want sex or if I really want money or if I'm feeling, you know, particularly violent or something. I can live out that fantasy within dream space, 
Okay, uh, and so that would relate, you know, to potentially, you know, people having these sort of request dreams uh, that I think we were talking about earlier on, where they'll be like, I really want to have a vision of X, Y, and Z. Well, if you really want to have a vision of anything, it's probably going to occur to you in sleep, and you shouldn't take it too seriously. Okay, uh, the dreams that you should take seriously uh, are the Oneroi, uh, and they come in two different flavors. Uh, either uh, they're going to be what he calls a theoromatic Oneros, uh, so that's like a a directly perceived uh, dream. So, like if you're going to have um, you know a fire in your house, or if you're going to experience a shipwreck, for example, uh, let's call it like tomorrow. Right, where you really need to be aware uh, that this is about to happen. Uh, whoever sends dreams, and Artemidorus is a little bit uh, diffident about this, uh, God or the universe, or maybe it's just your soul is able to perceive this stuff. Uh, they're going to send it uh, in a sort of directly perceived literal form so that you can take it seriously right away uh, and deal with what's to come. If you know you have a little bit of time between you know the event that's about to happen uh, and you can prepare for it, they'll send you what he calls an allegorical oneros, right? An allegorical true dream. Uh, and that's the dream that you need to decode. And he seems to see some value, though he doesn't actually go into it in great detail, uh, in the very act of decoding. Uh, he seems to see some value uh, in you know sort of committing our intelligence to trying to make sense of a dream. Right. Uh, and I have some theories about, you know, why this might be the case, but he actually doesn't tell us uh, explicitly. That's what makes up the vast majority of the Onero Critica is these uh, Oneroi, right, true dreams that need decoding. Uh, and he helps us with that process. Brilliant. Now, yeah. it's fascinating that he leaves it an open question as to whether it's the gods who send the dreams. And I'd like to come back to that in a moment. But I, I just wanted to ask you before that, what are the criteria for telling true and false dreams apart? How do, you, how do you know that you've had a true dream or a false dream? What he says basically uh, is if um, the dream reflects something that you currently want, right, uh, then uh, it's probably false, right? That's, I think that's the you know, easiest way. Um, the other uh, thing that comes to mind, uh, which I find really interesting, and it relates to your question about incubation, is if the dream seems so devilishly hard to decode, right, uh, that it would seem like the universe is like mocking you in a sense, uh, then those are probably not real dreams, right? So for example, uh, he talks about people who, who write these books that decode dreams of medical cures, right? So like people would go to a, you know, incubatory place uh, and they would have a dream that might tell them to take this, that, you know, or the other medicine, right? Uh, and sometimes that, you know, medicine might be in a code of some sort, right? So like, um, you know, Artemidorus mentions milk of a virgin or biting Indians or something. And like, we don't know what that is, okay? Uh, you know, right. but that seems to be the sort of flavor of these, uh, you know, ancient medical cures, except for like, if the gods really love us, right? And they're going to send us these cures when we're sick and like not really in the right place to like decode something complicated. Why would they send us something complicated? It just doesn't make sense. And so he seems to think that these are, you know, false dreams, either just sort of patently false or even fabricated uh, by the people writing these books. Interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. um, Asclepius usually, at least in the, the testimonies we have from people who had successful cures, obviously we don't have a lot of testimonies from people who said, came here, did a dream, load of bollocks, came back, got a different answer. That was a load of bollocks too. And now I'm dying of cancer. Fuck you, Asclepius. We don't ever get that. But um, people say, you know, I came here, Asclepius said to do, to eat these herbs and I did and I'm better. Thank you, Asclepius. Right. So it, it, right. is, it can be very straightforward, unlike oracles, you know. 
Yeah. Artemidorus is sort of parody of, of, you know, what these false dream cures, you know, would have been like. Um, it resembles a little bit the kinds of, you know, religious items that we see like magical papyri or like curse tablets kind of stuff. I feel like we've got a little bit of a picture of dream divination in mm -hmm. the second century in the Roman Empire, the Roman world. Um, obviously, we only have one book, really, but it's a remarkably um, rich source. So it tells us about some of the other works that are out there that because he criticizes them, it tells us a little bit about the relationship between diviners and their clients. There's several different kind of class-based things we can say yeah. about that. I'd like to fill in the background a little more. So if you can, can you give us a kind of run through of our earliest relevant evidence from yeah. the Greek world leading up to him? Because he doesn't invent these terms for dreams, but these terms for dreams also don't mean the same thing, for example, in Homer as they do in, mm -hmm. in his work. And anything else you think is relevant as background for understanding the, this book? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Homer. Um, you know, he's chock full, uh, both the Iliad and the Odyssey of, you know, famous dream related episodes. Uh, you know, I think, for example, of, you know, a, a sort of um, phantasmagoric Nestor uh, coming down to a sleeping Agamemnon uh, in book two of the Iliad, for example, urging him to send the Achaean army uh, back into battle. Unfortunately, this is what they translate as a baneful dream. Uh, it's a false uh, and misleading dream, uh, and it has disastrous consequences for the Achaean army. Um, can I ask you there? Um, this dream, Zeus sends it to trick Agamemnon. Um, Absolutely. So the gods in Homer are more than happy to do bad stuff to humans. In yeah. the post-Platonic world of literate philosophical people of the Greco-Roman world, the gods aren't supposed right. to do that anymore. So in Artemidorus, do you get the gods send intentionally sending deceptive dreams to people? Uh, no. Okay, that's an yeah. interesting change. I I'll be embarrassed uh, if somebody can, you know, find a counterexample. But basically, he sees, you know, the gods or the universe as, you know, providential in nature. It's using these, you know, phenomena to help us. Uh, and so the gods wouldn't do something like this. You know, if people are wrong about the outcome of a dream, it's their own fault because they didn't interpret it the right way. It's not that the gods were up to some sort of treachery. Uh, it's interesting. There's an article that came out very recently uh, that is trying to link uh, Artemidorus's view of divination uh, back to Homer, ultimately, right? Uh, but I think there, if I'm remembering it correctly, and I apologize to the author if I'm not, uh, it's more to the Odyssean notion of true and false dreams, right, that we see in Book 19 uh, with the dream of Penelope and her own uh, sort of rejection of, you know, the dream that she has and then Odysseus in disguise attempts to uh, make sense of. But the thing to say, uh, just quickly starting with Homer, is you can begin seeing inklings of, you know, what's going to become Artemidorus's dream uh, classification system. So, for example, you know, the idea that a figure uh, would, um, you know, come down like Nestor, for example, and speak to you, that does fit one of the taxonomic categories of dreams that Artemidorus mentions. He doesn't go into a lot of detail about it, uh, but he acknowledges that that's a type of dream that you can have, like where a famous person comes down and speaks some hopefully truth to you, right? Uh, and then we also get, you know, the sort of symbolic dream where, um, you know, Penelope is dreaming of these geese, right? And, you know, she's uh, feeding them and then an eagle comes down and slaughters them and then says, you know, have no fear. You know, this is uh, Odysseus returning home to you, my wife. Uh, and so, um, you know, that is, you know, the sort of 
uh, what do we call it, like an allegorical oneros, right, where it's, you know, meant to be interpreted and it's going to predict some future outcome. You know, so we can begin to see, you know, some versions of Artemidorus's dream system. Uh, the next place I would jump to is Plato, who in... Um, Book nine of the Republic, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, he goes into different kinds of dreams and relates them to his, um, you know, theory of the soul uh, and people who are, you know, dominated by the appetitive part of their soul, as opposed to the sort of more logical, wise uh, portion of the soul. Uh, they're going to ha tend to have, you know, these appetitive related dreams. The inhupnia that we were talking about before, where you're dreaming of sex and drugs and rock and roll and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, people who have conquered that aspect of their soul, that leaves the rest of, you know, the logical portion to divine, right? In sleep, it can see clearly and, and help them predict the future. Uh, and I actually think that that has uh, maybe even more to do with where Artemidorus himself is coming from. Aristotle uh, has some really cool treatises on dreams and whether dreams can have a divinatory capacity. He has a series of essays called the Parva Naturale, or sort of like short treatments of na nature-related things. Uh, he rejects the idea that dreams can be prophetic. Uh, he sees this as just sort of productions uh, of a, the brain's physiology, basically. Right. Um, so he's a skeptic yeah. of the whole thing. Yeah, he's, he's more a skeptic. And it's, you know, it's reflecting his uh, you know, kind of natural, historical, psychobiological tendencies. Right. While we're talking about these philosophical underpinnings, and maybe I should mention for our listeners that by the second century, CE, in the Greco-Roman world, a lot of these ideas had been mold over and they, they were certainly no longer just the property of professional philosophers. So in other words, there was yeah. a kind of popularized form of all these ideas and they had really seeped into culture. So you wouldn't necessarily have to have ever read Aristotle to be like, ah, dream divination, it's all nonsense. You know what I mean? But like mm -hmm. his insights will have influenced the culture at large. And exactly. in that respect, I wonder if Stoicism has anything to contribute because the way you describe a providential universe and also a, a divinatory um, a strong divinatory yeah. aspect to that sounds very stoic to me because they really love divination and they thought it was actually could be used as a proof for philosophical yeah. positions and stuff. Yeah, uh, that's a great um, point, right? The sort of divinatory capacity of the soul, right, in, in stoicism and the providential and divinatory nature of the universe, according to stoicism, right, does seem to reflect something, you know, distinct about uh, Artemidorus's mindset Maybe, you know, inklings of it can be, you know, traceable to Plato and the goodness of the gods, right? But it, it does, as you, you know, are right to intuit, right? It seems to reflect something a little bit more stoic, especially given the time period and the way that this stuff, you know, kind of hashes out over time. There has been hardcore scholarship. Uh, it's a Dutch author, uh, Kessels, if I remember correctly, A.H.M. Kessels, who's done probably still the best work on Artemidorus's dream taxonomy and trying to, you know, link it up to various uh, schools of thought, Platonic, Macrobius, uh, or the, you know, the Stoic authors like Posidonius and stuff. And um, he, if I'm remembering correctly, doesn't see, like, obvious overlaps between like the specific sources that we have now but i think that you're absolutely right that's not necessarily how these guys operated like where they're looking for individual texts and trying to create really clean one-to-one -one type associations if you see what i'm saying it more you know has to do with i think you know what's in the air at the time right yeah. you know how has this stuff percolated let's say into you know into the the field of writing texts on dream divination they're not necessarily going to be like citing particular pages from Plato or Posidonius or anyone else, right? It's just more that it's, it's percolated over time. 
and so, you know, I've tended to describe Artemidorus as eclectic uh, in nature, which, you know, maybe that's convenient in a sort of way out of, you know, trying to link him to very particular schools. But I also, frankly, just think that that's how things tended to work. Uh, you know, so he can be Platonic and Homeric and even sort of alludes, I think, to Aristotle. I try and make that, you know, claim in order to just, you know, associate a famous view uh, with his text, right? And that's something that people did all the time, even if they didn't buy into it hook, line, and sinker. You know, Stoicism for sure, uh, you know, stuff that we mostly associate with ancient medicine, like the empiricist school, as I was mentioning earlier. Uh, this is all kind of part of, you know, swirling around in his worldview. So I think that's a good enough in- introduction to the background, some of the background and some of the, the yeah. philosophical stuff, that the ideas that are floating around whether or not he's engaging with them in by reading the platonic dialogues or just by having chats with his mates and as you say it's in <laughs> right. the air now one very specific question i wanted to ask you about the interpretations and then i think we should conclude this interview just by talking about some of the crazy examples he gives and interpretations yeah, because it would be it would be it would add some color to this rather mm-hmm. abstract discussion mm-hmm. but what role does arithmology play in Artemidorus's interpretive frameworks. Because this, yeah. to me, is very interesting. He'll occasionally parse out words, convert them into numbers, and they say, and therefore, the dream means this, mm-hmm. because it adds up mm-hmm. to this. So mm-hmm. how's that? how does that work? Okay. Um, the numerology uh, section is sort of distinct in some ways, uh, you know, from other kinds of dreams, you know, where you tend to be dreaming of like, like images, there's a strong visual sense uh, in the vast majority of, you know, the kinds of dreams that Artemidorus imagines his clients might be having. But then all of a sudden, he feels like I should include, you know, dreams of numbers, or, you know, maybe we should associate numbers with like the letters that, you know, make up the word of a particular object that you might be dreaming. It's a bit of a non sequitur, to be perfectly honest. And so maybe that makes it all the more interesting in some ways. Unfortunately, it's really interesting. And I hope that in your podcast, you can follow up more with somebody who knows more about it. Numerology of the kind that Artemidorus does is not well studied in our field. Uh, And I look back at my commentary and, you know, Lord knows I put a lot of effort just trying to like make sense uh, of, you know, the sort of process for interpreting number related dreams. And, you know, the way it kind of works is like associating numbers uh, with different letters of the alphabet, right? Uh, Or, or it can be vice versa. And in some cases, like uh, you add numbers up, you know, under certain circumstances and, you know, try and make sense of them as well. And he actually provides some cool historical dreams, you know, that relate to this. I think it was something having to do with the Jewish war, uh, uh, not too prior to Artemidorus himself. And so he goes to this sort of complicated rigmarole, but unfortunately, uh, it was difficult for me to sort of associate, um, you know, what I would kind of call like the arithmetic and like alphabetic approach to, you know, doing numerological dream interpretations with really anything that you tend to see in previous authors. So like, For example, you know, when people talk about like numerology in the ancient world, like the first person that they always bring up is Pythagoras. Okay, I get that. You know, it makes sense, right? He sees a sort of number-based universe. And, you know, I guess if you go to like, you know, collections of like the pre-Socratic philosophers, for example, like you're going to get some stuff, you know, that feels, you know, slightly Artemidorian. Um, You know, I think about other authors that I work on. Uh, like Vitruvius, for example, you know, who are really interested in like perfect numbers, right? Like the number 10, for example, you know, Mm -hmm. becomes a sort of like basis of his writing and his architectural 
thinking, but like that's pretty different than, you know, looking at like objects and words and turning them into numbers and then using those numbers to turn them into other words that might having to do something, you know, with a divinatory outcome. And, you know, as I was saying, it sort of feels like a non sequitur. So like, in a way, I'm sort of saying this long response to your question by saying, like, I'm a little bit at a loss here. Uh, and I wonder if, you know, there are some better sources that we could look for for parallels. Well, um, as, a, as a note here, Artemidorus is the early... So if we call that the what they call the Pythagorean approach, arithmology. So that's yeah. where you say things like the 10 is the perfect number, but the five symbolizes marriage. And if you add right. the five to the 10, so this kind of like almost metaphysical approach to number, let's call that one thing and call the mm-hmm. other thing numerology, where you actually take the letters of someone's name, add them up because all letters are used right. for calculation and then go, oh, it's 116. And the name of... Uh, a coffee cup is also 116. Therefore, he is a coffee cup. This is, yes. let's call this numerology, right? Yeah, um, exactly. I have not found any numerology before Artemidorus. What the hell is going yeah. on? Does he introduce this as received way of interpreting dreams, like a received hermeneutic tool? In other words, you can take the numbers of letters um, and use them to then make connections and then reconvert them back into letters as something that is done, as something he's heard about. Yeah, what memory tells me uh, is that he initi- he he brings it up as something complicated, mm. right? And that's of interest actually uh, thematically in Artemidorus, um, you know, because he will occasionally do this for particular types of dreams, you know, where he's like, this requires deep insight, and like maybe you should go into it uh, in more detail. Uh, uh, you know, it deserves a sort of separate treatment. Uh, the the one that pops into mind, which is really sort of bizarre, but maybe useful for these purposes, he brings this up in the case of tooth-related dreams. I know that sounds absolutely insane and like a like a bizarre connection to the numerology dreams, but he's like, yeah, the subject of teeth uh, and tooth interpretations is really complicated and like deserves a separate and more in-depth treatment. And he actually cites Aristander of Telmesis, uh, who was Alexander the Great's diviner. And, you know, we have like references to him in Plutarch and stuff, who apparently wrote a whole treatise on tooth-related dreams and how to interpret them. And like Artemidorus, you know, cites his source and then goes into them to a certain extent, right? And it's like, you know, if you're, if you dream about molars falling out, that means something different than if your canines fall out and whatever. And so my hunch, right, he does this really detailed and and difficult to make sense of treatment of numerology related dreams. But, you know, I feel like that sort of becomes like a key in his text in some ways to saying that, like, this deserves separate treatment and that, in fact, separate treatment may well exist, even though he doesn't cite like a particular author that I can recall. Right. So maybe you could use that as kind of like subtle philological evidence for your you know, claims that Artemidorus may be the first, but that there there are precedents as well. Yeah, well, the first surviving. I'm, I, I would just assume, yeah. that, I w- even if it's an argument from silence, I would assume that there there has to be precedents, right? He didn't just mm-hmm. invent this. I think mm-hmm. it almost it's almost natural to a certain way of thinking. If your alphabet is also your system of, of numer- numerical notation, that you're going to start to play with that, you know, one way or another. And we see it in Kabbalah, we see it in Arabic letterism much later. So it's, it's right. uh, a recurrent mode both both for like esoteric hermeneutics but also for more metaphysical sort of letters are numbers numbers are the universe letters mm-hmm. are the universe this kind of um quite interesting type of metaphysics whereby mm-hmm. the written word is somehow associated with reality itself right which takes yeah. those forms 
I don't mean to, you know, sidetrack us too much, but um, this was an interesting time to be writing, uh, you know, the sort of latter half of the second century, right? And he's writing in an almost Near Eastern context, right? I mean, he's at Ephesus, uh, you know, I assume trade was uh, robust, right? He doesn't mention Near Eastern, no, that's not true, actually. Um, he'll mention Jews on occasion, it's possible, though probably not, uh, that one of the references to a place of worship that he makes may refer to a synagogue. Uh, I'll give credit to um, Gregor Weber of the University of Augsburg for bringing that up. It might just mean like something like a chapel or like a small place of worship or something like that. Uh, but uh, Professor Weber uh, brought up the possibility that that might refer to a synagogue, which is interesting. And then he um, refers to um, the goddess Astarte. You know, so he is aware of different religious traditions and how they could impact dream interpretations, you know, depending on whether you belong to them. But that, you know, what I'm saying is that that sort of reflects uh, a little bit of a broader global cultural consciousness, right? And you can also think about, you know, different divinatory manuals that were happening around this time. So like Ptolemy, for example, with the Tetrabiblos, right? You know, he's a second century AD author as well. Um, you know, so one wonders if, you know, there wasn't some information uh, coming from interesting places that might have informed these people's views, you know, especially in kind of like idiosyncratic, non-Greco-Roman kinds of ways, like with the numerology, for example. Mm, yeah, I think the question of the the origin, if there is just one origin of that practice of numerological interpretation is is definitely an open question at this stage yeah. anyway we have to finish up our episode okay now daniel but before we do what is if you have one uh your favorite dream that yeah. artemidorus cites or a, a short list what are some yeah. ones that really jump out at you as amazing and interesting the sex dreams are certainly the most famous uh, uh, though they're not necessarily my favorite, but trying to figure out all the different positions was a real translator's challenge. For example, missionary position seems to be something called the sunkrota, uh, skin to skin. So that's one thing. Uh, the medical cures uh, that I mentioned previously, thats uh, those are very interesting. Um, Can you give me an example of one, just to add local yeah, color? Yeah. Well, they're just so fantastical, you know, so it's, you know, things like, uh, you're dreaming of these ingredients like the biting Indians or, you know, milk of a virgin. Oh, what else were they? I don't know. I mean, it's just these kind of crazy paradoxical ingredients that you might uh, receive in a dream. And then you have to decode it in order to cure yourself of whatever uh, ails you. It's just so funny because the whole section is parody, right? He's making fun of people who believe that these are dreams that the gods might send. There is a book of life dream that I actually sort of personally like. Right. He sees, you know, dreams of books as relating to a human life. Uh, and, you know, if the book uh, proceeds in a certain way or if it gets damaged in a certain way or it's used in a certain way, uh, then that's going to say something about the dreamer's life. And, you know, I feel like that's a powerful symbol and, you know, one that scholars can certainly uh, appreciate. And so that's always been a sort of favorite in addition to the other more colorful ones that I was talking about. Well, on that note of dreams about books, um, we'll end our dream about a book <laughs> it's been dreamy uh, thank you very much thank you so much daniel it's been absolutely fascinating until we speak again stay esoteric yes.